Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we have a special treat. We have an interview episode of Invention to share with you. And we're going to be chatting with Jeff Beachbum Berry, a mixologist, author, um, restaurateur, uh, and just an, an overall expert and historian of tiki culture. He, In fact, he's the living authority on all things tiki, having unearthed numerous recipes from the golden age of tiki and helped to bring about its comeback from obscurity and stagnation. His books include Beach Bumberry Sippin' Safari and Beach Bumberry's Potions of the Caribbean, uh, which is an ex- excellent illustrated breakdown of tiki history, and the book that made me decide that we needed to reach out to the man for invention. Now, Robert, you're the one here that has definitely got a passion for this weird cultural artifact of th- this period known as like the tiki craze. Mm-hmm. What, In short, what is the, the tiki craze? Well, it's weird, you know, because it's like uh, you're dealing with with what can be an extremely delicious, rich, and complex cocktail that is also delivered in this kind of faux uh, Polynesian, uh, uh, you know, wrapping. Uh, and, of course, all cocktails are, you know, like 50 percent uh, ingredients, 50 percent presentation at least. Uh, it may even, you know, depending on how you look at it, uh, the, the percentage of presentation is even greater. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, they're also – they feel like an artifact of the past at the same time. Now, this is going to be somewhat different than uh, a lot of episodes we've done before, though we've looked at a lot of different kinds of uh, takes on the word invention. Usually, we're looking at something more like a technology, like a piece of hardware that mm-hmm. does something that you can hold in your hand. But today, we're going to be looking uh, centrally, I think, mostly at a an iconic recipe, the invention of a recipe for a drink, the Mai Tai. That's right. The, the signature, really, the, the, the superstar of tiki cocktails. If you, no matter what, how little you know about tiki, you probably know the Mai Tai. You've probably at least seen it on a menu somewhere. Uh, So, yeah, we're going to be quizzing uh, Beach Bum Berry about the history, the invention of the Mai Tai, and in doing so, you know, get, I think, to the, uh, the invention of tiki, but also just what we can what we can take from the invention of the Mai Tai and apply to invention and technology in general. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm excited to have uh, have uh, Beach Bum Berry on the show. I've been a fan of his books for uh, for a while. I'm a, a fan of his restaurant uh, in New Orleans, uh, Latitude 29, uh, which you'll find in the French Quarter. And if you want to check out his website, uh, it is beachbumberry.com. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. All right. Welcome to the show. Uh, 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 Jeff, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah. Um, aloha. My name is uh, Jeff Berry, alias Beach Bum Berry, and I write books about Polynesian drinks and food, and I own a restaurant and bar called Latitude 29 in New Orleans. All right. Well, we're going to be discussing the origins of, of tiki drinks, how the, the signature Mai Tai came to be, and how uh, America fell in love with the tiki cocktail. But first, how did Jeff Berry fall in love with tiki and become the beach bum? The way I fell down the tiki rabbit hole was about, oh man, I must have been eight years old, maybe younger. Um, and my parents, we live in the San Fernando Valley, um, just outside of Los Angeles. And at that time in the 60s, just about every town or city had at least one, um, you know, Polynesian themed restaurant or bar. The fad had just sort of hit its peak in the sixties. 
And the place they took me to uh, was called Ah Fong's. And it was just a Chinese restaurant. But what they had done was they had taken over a failed business called the Bora Bora Room. The Bora Bora Room had spent so much money on decor that they went out of business. They couldn't recoup their costs. So the place was beautiful. Uh, it was full of like running waterfalls and uh, you know a canoe hanging from the ceiling and there were these dawn to dusk lighting changes with this little miniature island diorama behind the bar and you had to walk through the bar to get to the restaurant uh, so I noticed that and um, th I just became a Polynesiac at that point and this faux Polynesia, this sort of like little movie set Polynesia actually made me want to go to the actual Polynesia which I did and, of course, when I got an old, old enough to drink, I wanted to find these places so I can actually drink in them. And that was 1980, and they were starting to disappear. The fad was over. So you could. there were still a couple of places left. Um, the Tiki Tea, a little tiny place, um, was, which is actually still there, third-generation owners. And then Trader Vic's was still there. So I went to the places that were there and, and tried some drinks, and they kind of blew my mind. I mean, the good ones were really, really good. And this was at a time when uh, this was the cocktail dark ages. You couldn't get a good drink anywhere. Um, nobody was using fresh juices. Everybody was using mixes from a can or a squeeze bottle. And um, tiki places were the only places that were still doing drinks the way they made them in the thirties, forties, and fifties. They were using fresh juice. They were using, you know, um, house-made syrups and, premium rums and they were mixing all these complicated um teasingly elusive flavors and basically what they were doing was they were doing craft cocktails like 70 years before that term even existed um so i kept going to these places not just because i love the interiors um love the decor but because the drinks were so good and um it wasn't until like the 90s that i actually tried to figure out how to make these drinks because you could not find them in cocktail books um, they were top secrets. They were industrial secrets, basically, uh, trade secrets, and very, very jealously guarded because you didn't want rival tiki places making your drinks and stealing your market share. Uh, and so you couldn't find them in recipe books. You couldn't find them in newspaper articles when you went to the library and looked up things on microfilm. You couldn't find them basically anywhere. You could find bad ones. <laughs> Plenty of bad ones were printed, but the good ones were just still secret. And when you talk to the old timers who were making them, um, you know, by the nineties, there were very few of them left, but when you talk to them, they wouldn't tell you anything, you know, you'd say, well, Hey, what's, what's in this drink? It's great. And they go rum and fruit juice. And <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> sort of like, you know, you, you knew immediately that that was the last question you were going to ask them, you know? So, um, so that sort of started me on this thing of trying to find, um, find, find how to, how to make the drinks, which I had to do of necessity because all these places were going out of business and eventually if I wanted to have a tiki drink, I'd have to be able to make it at home. Now, I know way less about uh, tiki drinks and tiki culture than, than Robert does, so I might ask the neophyte questions. <laughs> this might be a stupid sure. question, but is it possible to patent a drink recipe? Can you try to enforce intellectual property rights on that, or is that just, you know, you can't even get started? That's an excellent question, actually, and it's a question that's still being debated. Um, there's one uh, cocktail book writer, Philip Green, who writes books about you know, Ernest Hemingway and drinking in the 20s and all that. And he's also a, um, a trademark lawyer. And he actually did a whole seminar about that because everybody wants to know that now during the, this whole cocktail renaissance when you know drinks are, have become currency again for people's careers. And the short answer is no, you can't. Um, you, can, you can trademark 
a drink name. Um, and But you can't actually copyright a recipe and people can just do what they want once the recipe is um, out there. It's the same thing with food. I mean, there are plenty of chefs and restaurant owners out there who would love to be able to copyright dishes and only serve them in their places. But um, I don't know all of the legal intricacies of why you can't, but um, but you can't. <laughs> now, there have, been, there have been drinks that have copyrighted or, or trademarked, I'm not clear on which, their names, like the Dark and Stormy, um, Gosling's Rum, uh, trademark that drink name, which is basically just ginger beer and uh, Gosling's rum. They want you to use Gosling's rum and Gosling's ginger beer. So if you are a bar and you serve a dark and stormy and you don't use their products and you call it a dark and stormy, they could conceivably come after you and sue you for trademark violation. Hmm. So that's about as close as it gets to being able to protect a recipe. But of course, People will do what I do at my bar, which is um, I'll just call it the darker and stormier, you know, or, or <laughs> you know, <laughs> something like that. Same thing happened with a very popular drink served in a lot of tiki bars called the painkiller. Oh yes, um, yeah. They the Pusher's Rum trademarked that one, so you have to use Pusher's Rum in your painkiller, or you can't call it painkiller. So people call it you know all kinds of different things, um, but uh, they did actually. Uh, send a cease and desist letter to a bar in New York that was calling itself painkiller. Um, and if the bar was using Pusser's Rum, Pusser's would have had no problem with it, but they weren't. And it got kind of heated. The, the owners of the bar got all New York and said, hey, we're going to do what we want. And then Pusser's Rum said, no, you won't. And they <laughs> you know, basically forced them to trade their, change the name of their bar and all this other stuff. So uh, people still remember that, actually, from that was about almost 10 years ago now. You know, the fact that you can't enforce intellectual property rights on a recipe makes me wonder if, like, more complicated cocktail recipes could be a business decision in addition to being a, a culinary decision. Uh, well, there, does that yeah, make sense? Uh, there, um, it, it does except for yes and no. Um, yes, you're right. The more you can make something difficult to reverse engineer – um, for example, if you've got a drink like the zombie, which has all kinds of it's like 12 ingredients in it, <laughs> and it's 1934 and, and the drink is a sensation, it's like the cosmopolitan its day, everybody's writing about it, um, and you go to Don the Beachcomber's bar and you try and figure out how to reverse engineer it by watching them make the drink, um, well, good luck to you because the bottles don't have anything on their labels. Uh, what they did to try and stop people from uh, ripping off his recipes was they, uh, you know, those 12 bottles they used, they had like numbers or letters on them. So the people who mixed the drinks, all they knew was like it's a half an ounce of uh, number four or a dash of number two. And, um, you know, if, if, the guy, if the guy tries to hire away that bartender and bring him to his bar and say, okay, now make these really profitable drinks for me. Guy goes, okay, fine. And he looks at the back bar and goes, well, where's your number two? Where's your number four? <laughs> There's nothing I can do. And this actually did, this was the thing. Don the Beachcomber did do this. The other thing he did to stop people from figuring out how to make his drinks was he had all of the complicated tropical drinks made um, in the service bar. So if you go into his bar and you order a martini, the bartender will go, yes, sir, and, or yes, ma'am, and he'll make it for you right there in front of you. But if you order zombie, he'll open up a little door um, <laughs> behind the bar, open it up, and go, zombie, and close it again. And then, uh, you know, the, the team of elves in the back bar where nobody who nobody, nobody can see will make that drink. Then they'll open the door again and hand it to the bartender. 
Uh, and you can still see this being done um, if you go to the Mai Kai restaurant in Fort Lauderdale, which opened in 56 and was um, um, it's amazing, sort of preserved in amber uh, mid-century Polynesian palace. That's the way they make their drinks at the bar. You don't see anybody doing anything. So, um, uh, but but the no part of the answer about making drinks complicated is that it's it adds to the poor cost. Mm-hmm. So the more complicated a dish or a drink is, the more ingredients you have to have on hand, um, which you have to pay for, and the more labor it takes to do it, which you have to pay for. So um, it's a tricky sort of balancing act there. But it's a, that's a good question, though. Uh, I want to come back to a restaurant you mentioned earlier, uh, Tiki Tea, I believe. Yeah. Uh, is that the, the the Tiki restaurant in L.A. that is next to uh, currently next to a large Scientology center? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah. when, we, when we Joe and I uh, went there uh, about a year ago, uh, we were out there for business, and uh, we we made a point of like looking up like where should we go, f- uh, um, you know, for for Tiki in L.A. and uh, and so we got to experience that place, and it was uh, certainly for me unlike any Tiki restaurant. Uh, tiki, well, not even, they don't serve food, but a tiki bar that I'd been to because it was just so um, old and kind of kind of divey, would you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a neighborhood bar. The t- I mean, you went to basically my local. I used to live not far <laughs> from the Tiki Tea in Los Feliz. And when when the Scientology building was a KCET public television station. <laughs> and um, that place was it, it's still one of my favorite bars in the world. I love that place. And yes, it is sort of like a, you know, very low, um, uh, lo-fi neighborhood bar that just happens to serve tiki drinks. It's also a legendary bar that it was opened in 1961 by a guy named Ray Boone, who had worked as one of the original bartenders at Donna Beachcomber, one of those guys who was behind that, um, you know, the wooden door and <clears throat> worked at almost every famous tiki place in LA before he opened his own bar. And, um, you can still have drinks the way they were made them, the way they were making them in the 30s and 40s. If you go to the Tiki Tea, Ray's, Ray did put his own spin on the recipes, but they're very, very close. Um, and then his son took over, and and now um, his grandsons and his son are running the place. And it's just a fun, friendly neighborhood bar. It can get packed if you go at the wrong time of the day. Right. There'll be a line outside, and um, you know it's a tiny place. Yeah. Uh, I remember when we were there, there were people who I, I just got the feeling they had been regulars for decades. Oh, yeah. And everybody has their own area, too. Like when I was there, when I was going there like twice a week or whatever, um, I was expected to sit at a certain part of the I, – I would sit near the blenders so I can watch them do what they do. <laughs> but the one time I moved over to the other side of the bar to say hello to some people and had a seat, they looked at me like, what did you do? You just crossed into North Korea. You know? <laughs> it's, a, it's a really weird kind of thing. So I, I I definitely want to come back to um, uh, to to discussion of um, of modern and past tiki bars and, and especially uh, Don the Beachcomber and uh, and and Trader Vic. But uh, I want to back up a little bit first uh, in your in your book Potions of the Caribbean, uh, which is a, a wonderful uh, just beautiful volume uh, that I recommend to, to anybody interested in the topic. You chronicle five hundred years of tropical drinks, taking us on a, a drink citric uh, journey through the history of rum and colonialism in the region. As a self-professed uh, tiki nerd, when did you realize that despite all the South Seas trappings, the history of tiki is a history of the Caribbean? Well, first of all, thanks for the kind words about the book. Um, and uh, the the answer to that is far too late. Um, I'd been into tiki for years and years and years and years before it finally hit me that, hey, 
all these drinks are basically based on the planter's punch from Jamaica. <laughs> and it wasn't, um, it wasn't until really the, probably the 21st century that I've, that I realized that. I mean, I, of course, you know, that when you go to a tiki place, there's going to be drinks like the Martinique swizzle or the Barbados punch or so. Yeah. You get the idea that these are, or, or you know, they're daiquiri variations from mm-hmm. Cuba. So, you know, that some of the drinks are tropical drinks from the Caribbean, but, they all have names like Nui Nui and Tahitian Punch and uh, things like that. And then the other thing is um, they were all invented by this guy in Hollywood, Don the Beachcomber, and another guy in Oakland, Trader Vic. Um, so it's not like the Caribbean roots of all these drinks really shows. It's only when I really, really got into Don the Beachcomber's secret recipes, um, which took me forever to get a hold of. But when I finally got some of them, around 2004, 2005, um, this maitre d' named Richard Santiago, his daughter Jennifer, had his uh, personal effects. He had passed on, but he had a little uh, telephone book-sized note. When I say telephone book, I mean like a dress book. It goes into your shirt pocket. Um, So he had like a little notebook full of all of Don's original recipes from from 1937. So I got a hold of that and um i was able to study it and pour through it and compare it to the drinks that i've had in actual restaurants and the recipes i already knew about and you start to see patterns you start to see well everything is um a variation on the planner's punch which is the simplest drink in the world like sweet sour strong and weak as the old uh recipe goes you know um one of sour two of sweet three of strong four of weak um i mean different proportions than that but that's the old poem from the 19th century Sour being lime juice, sweet being sugar, strong being, you know, Jamaican rum, and weak being either water or ice. So um, what Don did was he took that very basic formula, and I figured out that about 33 of the 70 drinks he invented were based on the planter's punch. That was sort of the uh, building blocks for almost everything he did. And that didn't occur to me until fairly deep into my obsession with this stuff. I think I'd written four books by then. And then that's and that sort of grew into potions of the Caribbean. It was like, well, in order to really explain this 20th century post-prohibition phenomenon, you have to go back to 1492. You know? <laughs> now, now this book, like any book that uh, I guess these days that, that covers the, the the history of of drink, is is going to it has some recipes in it. But unlike uh, you'll find recipes in potions, uh, unlike any recipes you'll find in other books. You start off uh, by taking us back to things like the uh, Kalanago syphilis cure, as well as pre-Columbian Mayan hot chocolate and, and various uh, other like centuries-old mixed beverages. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and these these recipes are uh, – I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to actually try any of them, uh, but, but – uh, or the, the early ones anyway. Uh, but uh, I have to ask, did you did – you... I don't recommend the syphilis cure. Oh, that was going to be my question. Did you did you try all of them? What what was the syphilis cure like? And uh, and then what is the oldest mixed beverage you've come across that you would actually consider good? Oh, okay. Um, I yes, I uh, tested and um, and retested and tweaked just to make them as good as I thought I could make them. Um, almost every recipe in the book, with the sole exception. The only one I didn't taste and um, and make myself was the syphilis cure. Um, a because I couldn't find poxwood, um, and B because we have you know penicillin now. <laughs> but uh, um, the earliest recorded recipe for um, 
what we would now call a tropical drink is, I think it was from like 1692, and it was um, a French priest called Père Labat, and he wrote down a fragment of a drink recipe calling for, um, you know, Barbados rum, lime juice, sugar, and uh, he's spiced with cinnamon, uh, nutmeg, and clove. And that, that one, I, I, you know, that's a fragment. It's a recipe fragment. So I had to reconstruct it. So liberties were taken. Um, but that's the earliest one that was that's actually been written down to the point where I could recreate it. Um, there were other ones like, uh, you know, the, the pre-Columbian beverage Atole, but that's not really a tropical. It's not really what we call a, a precursor to a tiki drink because there's, you know, mm-hmm. there's no citrus in it. It's more of a breakfast drink, actually. The, the hot chocolate was another thing that I, you know, you know, basically all of the ingredients had been cataloged by various Spanish explorers and monks and, and, uh, and there was enough there so that I could try to concoct a version of it. Um, so, you know, to give you an idea of the flavors that went into it. And I, I started off with a, um, an actual hot chocolate recipe and then started adding the things that uh, they would have put into it back in, you know, the conquistador days or pre pre-conquistador days, pre-conquest. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. Uh, at this point, I, I want to get back to uh, one of my favorite aspects of, of tiki history and something you write a great deal about in your books, and you've already, you've already got into discussing some of it here already, and that is, of, of course, the, the tiki drama and the, the wars between the, the various wizards of tiki during the golden age of uh, you know, the umbrella drink. Can you introduce us um, to uh, sort of reintroduce us, I guess, to Don uh, the Beachcomber Beach and uh, also introduce us to Trader Vic? Yeah. Um the tiki bar was kind of single-handedly invented by Ernest Raymond Beaumont Gant, uh, who opened up a place called Don's Beach Cafe the day after Prohibition was repealed uh, in December 1933. And um, it became an, a sensation with the Hollywood crowd because of what he called his rum rhapsodies, which were the, the drinks he served. So he not only invented the tiki bar, he invented what we now call the tiki drink. He called them rum rhapsodies, which were these um, really complex, layered um, tropical punches, rum drinks. And by 1937, he had 150 copycats across the country, and he would be suing. He had to sue some of them. There was one guy named Monty Prozer, a nightclub impresario in New York, who opened up a chain of restaurants called Monty Prozer's Beachcomber. Uh, and he used the exact same font for Beachcomber that Don the Beachcomber had. And he claimed that he he was the home of the zombie, which was the drink that Don Beach was most famous for. So Don actually had to sue him. And he would sue other places too. So he was, wasn't happy about being ripped off um, on such a grand scale. Um, other people wanted to cash in on the immense popularity and, and newsworthiness of, of his place. I mean, when you had... Um, you know, Marlena Dietrich and the Marx Brothers and Howard Hughes and all these like Hollywood royalty coming in and going nuts over Don's drinks. Then, of course, the press also went nuts over it. Um, so everybody wanted to get in on that. And he had, he had people like um, there was a guy called Joe Chastek who just ran some kind of a deli in, in L.A. And he called, changed his name to Zamboanga Joe Chastek. And ripped off Don's drink menu and other sugar, you know, like Harry Sugarman opened a place called Sugar's Tropics in Beverly Hills. And, um, 
right down the, you know, three blocks away from Don's, uh, this guy, Bob Brooks opened up the seven seas. So everybody was ripping them off. Um, we don't know how close they got to reproducing his drinks, except for the fact that, um, there were people like Ray Bowen from the Tiki Tea, eventually of the Tiki Tea, who started off at Don's. He was making $35 a week at Donna Beachcombers in 1937. And Bob Brooks said to him, hey, why don't you come over the seven seas and make those drinks for me and I'll pay you another 15 bucks a week. So he did that. And this is one way, this was before uh, Don implemented that code. Uh, you know, this is when he still trusted his original employees. But enough bartenders left Don's with that secret knowledge uh, so that they could start spreading it around in different bars and making a fortune off of it. Um, knowing these recipes gave you a lot of power as an employee. Uh, later on, you could dictate terms. When Tiki became a huge phenomenon after World War II, there, I, I talked to a couple of uh, bartenders who told me that when they would apply for a job at a restaurant that wanted to serve these drinks but didn't know how, they would make a deal like, okay, I'll, I'll make these drinks for you and I'll tell you what to order, you know, from your suppliers and, um, and, and all that. But if I don't like it here, um, I'll leave and I'll take my recipes with me. I'm not going to tell you what the recipes are. And that gave bartenders an extraordinary amount of um, uh, leverage. So anyway, everybody was using this, these secrets to their advantage if they knew them and ripping Don off. There's only one Tiki impresario who decided that he wasn't content with industrial espionage. He didn't want to just steal away one of Don's bartenders or try to reverse engineer his drinks. He wanted to create his own um, original Tiki drinks. And that was uh, Victor Bergeron, who came down to Don's in 37. And like all these other people thought, wow, this is great. This is a land office business. I want to get in on this. So he went back up to Oakland and turned his barbecue shack, Hinky Dinks, into Trader Vic's, and he turned himself into Trader Vic Bergeron. And he he did what a lot of people did. He um, copied Don's sort of raffish South Seas persona character, like Don dressed like a beachcomber, like a South Seas guy with a straw hat and ripped pants and all that. And Vic took on that same persona without ever having actually been to the South Seas the way Don had. And he, at first, he started serving the same drinks Don did. Um, you know, he tried to make a zombie, failed miserably. It was, it's a terrible drink, <laughs> his, his version of the zombie. He wasn't even close. Um, but the difference between Don and Vic and all of the people who were ripping Don off was that Vic was a chef. And he had a really, really, really good palate. And he used that to try to create his own style of tropical drink as opposed to just, you know, stealing other people's. So he, um, he went to Cuba and he went to Trinidad and he went to Jamaica and he learned about tropical drinks the same way Don had. And he learned, you know, he got his education in sweet, sour, strong and weak and came back to Trader Vic's and created his own drinks. And the three most famous ones are the Scorpion, the uh, Fog Cutter, and of course the Mai Tai. Um, those were ripped off by hundreds of restaurants the same way that all of Don's drinks, like the Zombie and the Baby Grog and uh, Tahitian Punch and all those. Just as they had been ripped off, people started putting Vic's drinks on their menu too. Um, and that's a lot easier for them to do because Vic, unlike Don, actually published 
his recipes. He started, he was sort of the first real post-World War II celebrity chef um, who made a fortune with his own food product line, you know, for, for grocery stores. And he put out cookbooks and he put out uh, drink recipe books and he put his drinks in there. Now, not the Mai Tai though, because that was his signature drink, just like the zombie was Don's signature drink. Um, but he published this fog cutter and scorpion recipes. In his case, it was a smart business decision because people could go to their local grocery store and buy Trader Vic's scorpion mix and Trader Vic's fog cutter. Um, well, not fog cutters, but Trader Vic's orgeat syrup to put in the fog cutter and Trader Vic's white rum to put into the drink or, uh, you know, Trader Vic's gold rum or Trader Vic's brandy to put into the scorpion. So he was, you know, having it both ways. Um, the Mai Tai, though, he kept secret. If you wanted to make a Trader Vic Mai Tai at home, you bought a bottle of Trader Vic Mai Tai rum and a bottle of Trader Vic Mai Tai mix. <laughs> he wasn't going to tell you what the actual recipe was that they made in the uh, restaurant. Um, so those two guys had a quite a rivalry over the course of their careers. Um, Don really resented when Vic kind of stole his thunder and became the most famous tiki impresario, uh, largely because of the Mai Tai, which really took off and became, you know, it replaced the zombie as the most famous tiki drink. Um, and Vic was a bit of a better businessman than Don. He opened up a chain of restaurants across the U.S. and eventually um, Europe and the Middle East and Tokyo. And um, he got a lot more press than Don did because Don ended up going to Hawaii and was sort of like out of the mainland public eye as much as Vic was. Uh, and to Don's dying day, he claimed that he invented the Mai Tai. Uh, he, it always really bothered him that Trader Vic um, was famous for creating the Mai Tai. And that gets into the heart of the little war they had. Um, it gets really complicated and it turns into like a Gilligan's Island sitcom plot almost. Um, you know, Don, Don Beach's widow, Phoebe, I talked to her, um, I, well, emailed with her and went back and forth on it because she wrote when she put out a book of Don's recipes in 2003, which was kind of a revelation to see that. Um, but these were all much later versions of his drinks, you know, from like the the restaurant was still around in the eighties. She had a recipe for a Mai Tai, which she said Don invented in 1933. And I went, Oh, well, that's interesting. So, and then she said that he invented the Mai Tai and, you know, Trader Vic didn't invent the Mai Tai. So I made the drink and it didn't taste anything like Trader Vic's Mai Tai. Um, and then as I got deeper and deeper and got more and more, um, research materials. When I got Dick Santiago's little recipe book, for example, from 1937, there was no Mai Tai in that recipe book. And when you see a 1937 Beachcomber's menu, there's no Mai Tai on that. And there's no Mai Tai on any Beachcomber's menu until the Kennedy era, which is you know well after the drink became very famous. So in, in order to stay current, he would have had to have put a Mai Tai on his menu. Um, there was also a fog cutter and a scorpion on his menu by then. You know, he'd mm -hmm. taken Vic's most famous drinks and put them on his menu. So what happened? Well, Don actually was a beachcomber. He actually loved Tahiti, and he lived there for a while, uh, you know, on the beach. And and he would have heard the phrase Mai Tai, or more properly, Mai Tai, which um, means basically it's Tahitian for awesome. You know, oh, that's great. Oh. 
Meite. Uh, so he would have known that phrase, and it would have naturally been something that he would have named a drink. He called his drink the Mai Tai Swizzle, I believe. Um, and I, I kept pressing Phoebe about it. I was like, well, why isn't it, you know, why can't I find any evidence of this drink served in his restaurants? And she said, well, it wasn't one of his favorites. So, okay, so let's say, he, let's take Phoebe at her word, and why shouldn't we? She was married to Don. I never even met the guy. Um, so Don invents a drink he calls the Mai Tai Swizzle or the Mai Tai in 1933. Um, and it doesn't end up on his menu because he's not one of his favorites. Trader Vic, the story he tells is that he invented the Mai Tai one night at his bar in Oakland in 1944 with his head bartender, Fred Frank Polt. And they named the drink uh, because a friend of his, uh, Carrie Guild, who lived in Tahiti, came into the bar and he handed her the first, um, you know, the final version of this drink that he'd been working all day on with his bartender. And she drinks it and goes, oh, mate, which is, you know, again, uh -huh. Tahitian for awesome. Um, so you've got a sitcom coincidence here. Um, <laughs> Don the Beachcomber claims he invented the Mai Tai. It's true. Trader Vic claims he invented the Mai Tai. This is also true. Um, but the whole truth is that Don invented a drink called the Mai Tai, put it in a drawer. Nobody ever knew about it. And Trader Vic's Mai Tai is the Mai Tai that we all know. And, um, you know, he can certainly claim that that's his drink, I think. But um, it, it, it was really a source of tension between the two of them. Um, I mean, Don gave an interview to some Honolulu paper when he was well into his uh, 80s and uh, still claimed that he invented the Mai Tai and it really pissed him off. <laughs> now, one, one of the things you write about uh, concerning the Mai Tai is that when it, uh, when it first came out, it didn't have that initial splash. Like uh, I think you mentioned there was a particular menu where the zombie was still very much at the top. The Mai Tai was towards the bottom of the page. Uh, and it didn't get like the same press, at least initially, that the zombie got. How did the Mai Tai ascend to become this just dominant drink, this this drink that everyone uh, at least has some surface-level knowledge of? Uh, that's a great question. Basically, um, as you say, the zombie was immediately successful. Um, part of the reason being that it was a, you know advertised as being a very strong drink. Don said it was great at marketing. He said only two to a customer. Um, because it's so strong. So radio comedians started to um, tell jokes about the drink and how strong it was. And travel writers said, you have to go to Don the Beachcombers. And when you get out of the train in the central station downtown and go have a zombie at Don the Beachcombers, is the first thing every tourist has to do. So it was huge from the very beginning. Uh, Trader Vic says he invented the Mai Tai in 1944, but nobody's written anything about it. Uh, there's nothing in the historical record, nothing in newspaper databases. Nobody's talking about it. Um, and um, it obviously was not a hit right out of the gate. There is proof that it was on his menu as early as 1950. That's the, that's the earliest menu I have from Trader Vic's that has the Mai Tai on it. Um, but there are earlier menus I don't have, which might have it. Um, at any rate, in 1952-53, Vic is hired to do the cocktail list for the Matson cruise ship lines. Uh, and these were luxury cruise liners that went to Hawaii. This is before, you know, commercial jet travel. So most people went to Hawaii on a cruise, spent a week on a boat and got into um, Honolulu Harbor. So he's doing the drinks for 
the the boats, uh, you know, the ship bars. And Matson also owns the Royal Hawaiian Hotel and a couple of other hotels in Hawaii. So he does the same drinks for these hotel bars. The whole idea being that Matson wants you to, to pay to take a cruise in their ships and then to pay them to stay in a Matson hotel. So to build a better mousetrap, well, let's make let's get Trader Vic to do these drinks for us. One of those drinks um, that he puts on the menu is the Mai Tai. But as you say, it's all the way at the bottom of the cocktail list. Um, I've got a 1953 Royal Hawaiian menu, and it's like second from the bottom. I think even the planner's punch is above it. So obviously it was not a famous drink at that point, but it became famous in Hawaii. Uh, I think several reasons. One was that it had a great Hawaiian name. Um, I mean, it's a Tahitian name, but it just sounded really Polynesian, really romantic. Mm. And the drink name was great. Just like the zombie was a great drink name. I mean, names are very, very important for a drink. It's half the selling point for them. The drink started to spread virally through the islands as a luau drink. Um, everybody went to a hotel luau, every tourist. Um, and they all you know, sat there and ate, uh, you know, Kahlua pork and lomi lomi salmon off the uh, banana leaf mats and everything. And Mai Tais became the default drink at these uh, luau's. Whether or not they had Vic's formula, um, they were they would improvise if they didn't. Sometimes a Mai Tai would just be pineapple juice and rum. Is terrible. I mean, you, you go to Hawaii even now, and you have terrible Mai Tais that bear no relation to Vic's. But the name worked for them, I guess. So the first people who start writing about the Mai Tai are travel writers, and they're writing about traveling to Hawaii. Um, and it's like 53, 54 when people start, you know, people start writing about a drink they had in Hawaii called the Mai Tai. What really sends the Mai Tai over the edge is 1959. 1959 is the year Hawaii becomes a state and not just a U.S. territory. And it's also the first year of commercial jet travel, um, passenger jet travel, the Boeing 707 makes its debut. And all of a sudden, you can get to Hawaii from the west coast of the mainland in a matter of hours, you know, four or five hours. If you wanted to take a plane before, you had to take a prop um, prop plane that took about 12 hours to get there. And they had little berths that you slept in. Um, or most people just went by boat. So all of a sudden, travel to Hawaii becomes very easy and affordable, and it's a state. So even the most xenophobic American from the Midwest or the South or whatever says, oh, well, it's part of the U.S., I'll go there. And tourism blows up in Hawaii. Um, it goes from thousands of people to tens of thousands of people a year, uh, all going to luau's, all having a Mai Tai, and the drink just blows up. And you know, by, the, by the, the Kennedy era, it's just all, it's all over the place. It's just the rage. And even non-tiki bars are serving it, or a facsimile of it if they didn't know the recipe. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. All right, so let's fast forward to uh, today. So you, you, you have Beach Bum Berries Latitude 29 in New Orleans. Uh, has it changed the way you feel about any of the figures in tiki history? And, uh, and, and what is your own relationship with, with secret recipes? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, it's really funny to go from writing about tiki drinks and researching tiki drinks to serving them to people. And it's given me a whole new... Um, perspective on people like Don and Vic and all the bartenders who used to work for them and with them. 
uh, a, a whole new level of respect for them um, because it's running a restaurant's hard. <laughs> Fortunately, Mrs. Bum takes care of most of the work, <laughs> but uh, she's the one with all the experience. She kind of dragged me kicking and screaming into opening the place. <laughs> I'm glad she did. It's been great. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of work involved, a lot of people to deal with and um, a lot of things to deal with that I never thought about when I was just writing about drinks and restaurants, things like insurance, plumbing, electricity, um, you know, payroll tax. Um, <laughs> it just goes on and on. Permits goes on and on and on and on and on. And it has nothing to do with how great a drink is it's just keep the place open and keep customers happy the other thing that um, was really interesting to me about opening a place is um i no longer after we've been open five years now and for me the most important thing to hear when i'm walking through the dining room and touching tables and asking how everything is is when uh not when a customer says oh we love this drink this is a great drink thank you so much it's when they say oh um you know, we love Sam or we love Alexandra. We love um, Brad. They're, they're great. And we, we, those are our staff. So if a server or a bartender is making them, if, first of all, if they know them by name and if they're raving about them to the boss, like that makes me happier than anything they could say about the drinks. It's like if you have a good experience and, and if our people show you a good time and make you feel welcome and happy, that's, you know, aloha bartending, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that, you know, that's very, very important. And I never really grasped that when I was just a customer at these places. Um, but uh, so there's so many more dimensions to dealing with, with uh, the drinks and with the creation of the drinks as well. Um, one technical note, one of the things that was um, <clears throat> very eye-opening to me was when I was researching recipes or tweaking recipes or trying to reverse engineer them uh, based on, you know, bartender's notes or whatever, or fragments, if I wanted to spend a half an hour to make a drink, um, I could do it. And if I wanted to spend $80 on a, one particular bottle of rum that would taste best in a drink, I could do that too. <clears throat> and you can't do that when you've got customers who want to be served. You have to work out. I had to look at every single recipe that I wanted to put on my menu at Latitude 29. Um, you know, first of all, there were like 300 I wanted to put on, but I had to cut that down to 30 um, because you can't have um, too many recipes on your menu or your bartenders can't do them. They, they can't be executed. And also people get, just get confused. I think um, 30 is about as much as you can cram onto a menu. Anyway, um, that was part of the learning curve as well. But when I was doing revamping the recipes for service for actually being served at Latitude 29, I had to go through every single one of them and rebalance them and retweak them um, because I was no longer just trying to make the best possible drink. My goal when I was writing the books was just a very singular goal. It's like, how do I make the best possible drink? Well, that becomes like um, three dimensional chess from Star Trek when you're trying to. I realized that that's, that's what I had to do from watching other cheeky places, other new cheeky places. Like if it took 10 minutes to get a drink, no good, you know? And, um, and if it, a drink costs $25, that's also no good. So <clears throat> I had to go from 
first level, how do I make the best possible drink to how do I make the best possible drink in the least amount of time? And then the third thing was, how do I make the best possible drink in the least amount of time for the least amount of money? Um, not sac without sacrificing quality, but still making it so that I could afford the drink and I, I could afford to not charge people an arm and a leg for it. So you, I had to work out systems. And um, one of them was, as you, as you know, if you've made any of the drinks from these books, they were all, most of these drinks, especially Don the Beastcomber's drinks, were flash blended. In other words, um, they would be put into a, you know, a top-down Hamilton Beach mixer with a certain amount of crushed ice and blended for like three to five seconds. Not to make a, a slushy drink, but to sort of swizzle it in a way that no human possibly could without Marvel superhero strength. Um, and it gives the drink um, a very unique texture, and it dilutes instantly, and it chills instantly, and it's it's much better than shaking. But the problem is that when I was making doing the drinks for the book and guessing how much crushed ice to put into each drink, because that was never indicated on any of the um, you know old vintage recipes that I had unearthed, um, I had to guess at it. And some drinks tasted good with four ounces of crushed ice, like half a cup. Some drinks tasted great with a cup and a half, like 12 ounces of crushed ice. Some were perfect with one cup of crushed ice. And if you look at my books, that's the way they are. I mean, they all call for a different amount of crushed ice. Well, the first thing I realized was that's going to slow down the bartenders. If they have to, A, remember how much crushed ice goes into every drink, as well as remember this complicated recipe, um, that's not good. So what I did was I had to rebalance each drink so that they all use the exact same amount of crushed ice. So the, the, the staff never had to think about the amount of ice they were putting into the blender. I just went into a restaurant supply store, got a long-handled six-ounce scoop, and I rebalanced every drink so that they all worked with six ounces of crushed ice. And that's all they have to do now is just, like, dip the scoop into the ice well, level it off, put it in, and not think about it. And things like that shave precious time off the making of a drink and also it eliminates mistakes you're not going to guess you're not going to get the wrong amount of crushed ice in there because you don't have to think about it and that's just one example of some of the things i was doing on that second level of how to make a drink in the least amount of time um and the least amount of money part is you know you want of course you're using quality ingredients but you're not going to use a 120 dollars bottle of 20-year Appleton Jamaican rum to make your Mai Tai. <laughs> it's just not, you can't do that. You can't charge people $50 for a Mai Tai. Um, so you have to come up with other rums and mix, you know, mix uh, less expensive rums that are still going to give you that depth of flavor. So that's just a couple of, um, you know, examples of the kind of uh, much, you know, you could go much, much deeper and much broader um, into this whole phenomenon than I ever did when I was just writing the books. When I would look back on some of these recipes and see things that had never occurred to me before I owned a restaurant, um, before I ever had to make a menu for, uh, um, for paying customers. If you look at Don's early recipes from that 1937 book, they're all in very jagged proportions. At one and a half ounces of this, um, a quarter ounce of that, um, three quarter ounces of this, a half an ounce of that. And if you look at that same recipe um, from a notebook from the 1960s, you know, 30 years later, when he had 30 years more experience, that same drink, he, re he refigured it, reconceived it with the same ingredients to be three-quarter ounce, three-quarter ounce, three-quarter ounce, three-quarter ounce, three-quarter ounce, three -quarter ounce, all the way down the line. 
Hmm. And that's speed. He did that purely so that the drink could get out there faster um, because he was dealing with a more high volume situation. Instead of making a drink at his tiny little bar in Hollywood, he was, he he had to come up with recipes that could be made, you know, serve 700, thousand drinks a night. So you see that he wasn't just thinking about taste and flavor. He was, he was thinking about those things, but he was also thinking about speed, which was kind of a fascinating revelation, which I, which would never would have occurred to me if I hadn't actually done a menu for my own place. This is funny how well it parallels uh, a lot of inventions we look at that are more traditionally the kind of thing you think of as an invention, you know, a new piece of technology where mm-hmm. when we think about invention uh, in a zoomed out way where you're, you know, not looking at it very hard, we tend to think of invention as the, the space of, you know, discovering what's possible. Whereas when you zoom in on the process of invention, is it is much more often about what is practical. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a perfect way to encapsulate it. Um, and that was my learning curve. It's like, and you're absolutely right with whether the invention is, um, you know, uh, the internal combustion engine, uh, whether the invention is a zombie cocktail, um, whether the invention is like a paper cutter. It's all about, yeah, okay, you've invented this thing. Now you have to be able to replicate it, you know, and you have to be able to make it faster and cheaper and uh, and streamline it and, you know, add. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's the same process. I never thought of it that way until today. <laughs> now, you, you have also invented some cocktails. Uh, so I, I'm curious, like, what is what is your your mindset uh, like today? If you're if you're seeking to to come up with a new cocktail, are you doing are you uh, engaging in this exercise as uh, Jeff Berry, the, uh, the, the the author and uh, and Tiki historian? Or is it more in the mindset of uh, of Jeff Berry, the restaurant owner? Um, that's a great question. Um, it's all of that has to be thrown out of your head when you're trying to create something. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I used to work in uh, screenwriting and journalism and uh, advertising and other forms of writing. And the best piece of advice I ever got about writing anything was write with no attachment to outcome. Don't think about who's going to want to buy this or even who's going to want to read it. Just write it. Just get it done. And, um, and then worry about all that other stuff later. And the drink making process has always been like that for me. And it hasn't changed. Um, owning the restaurant hasn't changed it. Um, you know, writing these books hasn't changed it for me. I was, I was, and in many ways still am an amateur in the, in every sense of the word. I mean, I, I, an amateur is someone who loves, um, whatever it is they're obsessed about. So for me, it was a hobby. All this drink stuff all through the 1980s and 90s and, and writing these books until we actually opened Latitude, it was, it was a hobby. It was, it was, I was coming at it as an amateur. I had no professional training whatsoever. Um, you know, no mentors, no guidebooks, nothing to go on um, about how to make a drink. Uh, that, was, that wasn't, you know, that was mine. I mean, I have plenty of guidebooks about how to make a drink that wasn't mine, but as far as creating a drink, that all started to happen kind of accidentally. Um, I was researching these recipes. I was uncovering all these long lost drinks. And I, and very often the recipes were either in code, uh, which we talked about earlier, and I had to crack the code, um, or there were fragments, or they were like bartender's notes to self. Um, we already used the example of how they wouldn't indicate how the drink was actually put together, whether it was shaken or blended, and if it was blended, how much ice. So there was a lot of guesswork involved. And over time, 
without realizing it by osmosis, I was sort of like getting an education in tropical mixology just by trying to recreate these drinks that already existed in one form or another. And it's gradually it got to the point where I felt confident enough to try and invent my own stuff. But it was always just noodling around, you know, it was just like tinkering with something in the garage pretty much. Um, I never developed a um, method for making a drink. It would always just be, Oh, okay. Here's this bottle. What's what's this stuff? Oh, uh, it's a very herb chartreuse. It's a very herbal liqueur. Sounds. What other drinks have been made with chartreuse that looked out? Oh, okay. I wonder what it works with. And it would always just be messing around with no um, attachment to outcome. It's like maybe something will happen. Maybe it won't. And that's still kind of the way I do things. It's the only way I know how to do things. Um, I don't start with this, you know, some, some people have proportions in their head. Like you will talk to some um, bartenders and cocktail makers who say, well, there's a golden mean for, um, a, you know, for a daiquiri or, a, or it's, it's three quarter ounce, three quarter ounce, two ounce, or it's a half ounce, half ounce, one and a half ounce. Or it's this, I don't believe in that. And it's just like, um, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work for me. I just sort of like get in there and mess around and, and just, you know, just make a mess and, uh, and see what happens. Um, it's much more fun that way for me. Anyway, I would feel very constricted if there was some sort of methodology that you had to follow. Now, of course, the fact is that I'm no longer making drinks just to drink for myself and my friends in my house and maybe put them in a book if they're any good. Now I'm, whenever I make a drink, it's for, for a reason, you know, either I have to go do a uh, cocktail seminar somewhere and I have to use uh, sponsor ingredients, so I have to come up with a drink that uses those. Or maybe the Latitude needs a new drink on the menu or some magazine or newspaper wants me to create a drink for them. So that's a very specific um, outcome that needs to be met. And that actually is helpful um, because when you have a frame, when you're put in a box and you have to do something that uses this or that ingredient, um, and it has to be done by such and such a date, those limitations are very freeing, um, paradoxically, ironically, because you can only go down that road and not down the 50 other roads that you might have ventured down and, and reached a dead end at. Um, so if you, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a writer's prompt, I imagine. Yeah. So um, I know I've been going on and on about this, but of course it's it's um, always been an obsession of mine and it's fun. I mean, it's fun to do it without any restrictions or worrying about outcome, but also you don't come up with that many drinks that way. Like I just did a bunch of drinks for this uh, puree company called Real, you know, Real syrups. They do coconut mm-hmm. and passion fruit and all these other things. And, and they wanted 17 recipes, one for each one of their expressions, one of each one of their flavors. And I thought, oh my God, that'll take me five years. I don't, <laughs> you know, I come up with one drink every three years. And, but having those restrictions, just I zoomed through it. Like I did it in about five days. And it was very freeing to be put in this box where, okay, you have to use this raspberry puree in a drink. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> That's 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 job one, uh, and you can't t- you can't use rum in every single one of these seventeen drinks. What will work with a raspberry that isn't rum? Uh, so then you you have a different base spirit, you lock into that, and okay, what 
citrus works with raspberry does lime work does lemon work what's the best one so you get it done faster um and it narrows your focus to the point where you can actually complete something so one of my favorite facts uh, that stood out from uh, potions of the caribbean was just this weird bit where you mentioned that uh, I think it was Jackie Kennedy's recipe for a daiquiri involved frozen limeade. <laughs> it was yeah. like store-bought <laughs> <Right>. frozen limeade. <laughs> um, <laughs> that makes me wonder, do you have thoughts about and, – and again, this is going to involve you know subjective uh, things about taste. But from your perspective, what leads to the proliferation of bad recipes for things? Um that's a great question. And in the case of Jackie Kennedy's daiquiri, which was a frozen limeade and a few drops of phalerum and rum, it's very often um, economics. Uh, now, of course, Jackie Kennedy came from a very wealthy family, and she was married to the president of the United States. They could afford fresh lime juice. They could afford to pay uh, an in-house uh, chef to make their daiquiris for them. But you have to remember the times. This was during the beginning of the industrial food complex where you had uh, frozen TV dinners, uh, frozen juices, frozen everybody had a refrigerator and a freezer and all you know kitchens with appliances suburbia was growing and convenience was the order of the day and um, food companies responded to that. So all of a sudden everything was frozen, everything was pre-mixed and in a bottle of, like Trader Vic's, Trader Vic's Mai Tai mix, mm -hmm. you know, why why mess around with all this other stuff? Just pour 2 ounces of that into your glass. Uh, so convenience, um, you know, industrial mass production methods for food and drink. And that's really what killed the cocktail was this um uh the convenience. It was killed by convenience. It was killed by like uh, canned and bottled mixes and by frozen this and frozen that. And, you know, every restaurants realized they could cut their costs tremendously by not using fresh citrus um, and by just not having to buy five ingredients, just buying uh, Trader Vic's Mai Tai mix. You would go into a lot of places in the 70s and 80s and you would see Trader Vic's Mai Tai mix behind a bar of even a really good expensive restaurant. They would just use that stuff. Um, great for Vic, not so great for the customers. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm not an expert at this, but I, I mean, am I correct in thinking that citrus juice just does not age well? That is not something that, that sits around on the shelf and stays good. There's a, there are a couple of um, bartenders in New York who are very, very uh, scientific in their approach to these things, uh, Don Lee and Dave Arnold. And they've conducted tests under laboratory conditions, um, trying to figure out what the shelf life of fresh squeezed citrus is and when it's at its peak. And um, I, I don't remember the specifics, but I think after four hours, it starts to lose its uh, crispness and its uh, its you know its best flavor. I've found that you can keep it uh, refrigerated, fresh juice for two or three days, um, but it's not going to taste the same the third day as it did when you fresh squeezed it. It's kind of interesting. Oxygen, oxygenating it. Um, you like, there are other bartenders that say, well, I don't think fresh squeezed juice is, is that when, when you're taking it, when you're cutting a lime open, when you're making a daiquiri, for example, rum, lime, and sugar. Um, okay. If you're at the bar, you cut a lime open, you're squeezing it into the shaker. So it's as fresh as you could possibly get. It's just been cut and squeezed. Um, there are bartenders who will tell you that that doesn't taste as good 
as lime juice that's been in the well for about two or three hours. Oh wow! Which is ox, which is oxygenated a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, so it's a there's a, there, there's actually a lot of um, you scratch a bartender, you scratch any bartender, and you're going to find somebody who is a medical student or an architecture student or um, you know a science whiz. Um, there, people gravitate to bartending for all kinds of reasons, but you people get. People with a technical bent and with a scientific background have really, really gotten into this stuff. It's kind of cool to see. I basically flunked chemistry in high school. So for me, a lot of this stuff just goes right over my head. But uh, but it's fascinating to see that approach being taken to something like cocktails. So is it safe to assume that the pre-mixed uh, Trader Vic's Mai Tai mix was bad? Is that is that the case? You know what? That's a good question because I've actually used it. When I'm on vacation, like in Hawaii, for example, you go into the, like the ABC store, which is like their 7-Eleven or mm-hmm. uh, you know convenience store, and they they all have Trader Vic Mai Tai mix uh, in there for tourists who want to make a Mai Tai in their hotel room. It's not bad. It's actually okay if that's what you've got to work with. Um, you know, if, when you're when you're um, staying in a hotel and you're a tourist in Hawaii, it's the only game in town. Like it's either that or you're going to have to try and track down Orjot syrup. And, um, you know, orange curacao and <laughs> all this other stuff <laughs> and just start turning your hotel into a bar room. Um, so, um, when, hey, you know, when in Rome, it's, I, I do not wish to, um, to diss Trader Vic's My Time Mix. It's one of the better ones out there. But um, is it as good as a fresh made My Time? I don't think he, no, not even Trader Vic would argue with me there. <laughs> All right, uh, Jeff, the Beach Bum Barry, thanks for coming on the show and chatting with us about Tiki history, Mai Tai history. Uh, the books are all out there. Uh, the app, uh, Total Tiki, is excellent. I, I uh, am proud or ashamed to admit that I use it almost on a daily basis. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and also, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of your restaurant. I only make it down to New Orleans once a year, but when I go, I make sure I come by uh, for at least a, a couple of drinks. Uh, but what, what else is going on in the world of, uh, of, of the Beach Bum? What do you have uh, coming up or anything else you want to uh, uh, tell our listeners about? Uh, well, the one thing which it's a little early to talk about is it just ended, but um, I've partnered up with cocktail kingdom about uh doing some pop-up bars um sip and santa's surf shack which they've shortened just to sip and santa it's a mashup of christmas decor and flavors and tiki decor and flavors and um we had 27 bars across the country this past season participating in it so we come up with like um tiki drinks tropical drinks but have like what you associate with the holidays as flavors, uh, you know, cinnamon and um, uh, cranberry and things like that. And then there's Christmas decor overlaid on top of tiki decor. So you have two over the top uh, decor themes grafted onto each other. And I mention it now because I start working on this pretty much in January <laughs> once, <laughs> once Christmas is over. So when you're asking what's next for me, what's next is coming up with the recipes for the 2020 Sip and Santa pop-ups, which aren't going to happen until after Thanksgiving. But that's what's going to be occupying me now. Um, and then it's just uh, running latitude and um, uh, you know trying to get in there whenever I can. And we've got such a great crew now. Uh, got our sea legs, which there's really not much for me to do there anymore, which I love. <laughs> I'm basically just picking stuff up off the floor that, you know, like, oh, there's a plastic monkey that fell from the table. That's basically my job now because everybody else has got it all together. 
Um, so, so yeah, and a lot of traveling. I've been doing a lot of traveling, going to a lot of cocktail festivals, giving drink seminars. I'll be in um, Sacramento next week for the Sacramento Cocktail Conference, and I'm going to be in Atlanta, actually, um, for the March Tiki Festival in Huele, I believe it's called. Um, so, you know, Florida, then uh, London and all kinds of other places. It's interesting with the whole cocktail renaissance that uh, cocktail festivals and cocktail conferences have sprung up everywhere. So I spent a lot of my time just going to those at this point. Awesome. Well, well safe travels uh, as you, uh, you you make your way around the map for all of this. And we'll be looking uh, forward to Christmas 2020. All right. <laughs> all right. Thank Thanks, you. Guys. Thanks. All right, so there you have it. Thanks once again to uh, Jeff Beachbum Berry for chatting with us. Again, he's the author of several books uh, that you'll find in print, including Beach Bum Berry Sip and Safari and Beach Bum Berry's Potions of the Caribbean. Uh, again, his restaurant is Beach Bum Berry's Latitude 29 in the French Quarter of New Orleans. And if you want to check out his website, it's beachbumberry.com. Oh, and the app. Total Tiki, that's the app that I use uh, way too often. Uh, but it's a wonderful app. It's you, uh, just right there on your phone. You have all these different uh, uh, tiki cocktail recipes you can pull up. You can just slide through, like, all the different versions of, say, the zombie or the Mai Tai, and they're right there at your fingertips. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 